Are you struggling to create engaging content for your B2B brand? Let Podcast Town help. Our expert services will help you develop a successful content marketing strategy, making your brand stand out and increase revenue. With our guidance, you'll create quality content that resonates with your audience and builds brand loyalty. Visit our website at podcasttown.net to learn more and to get started today. We help you launch, grow, and maximize. What's up, enterprisers? Welcome to another episode of the Enterprise Now podcast, where we shape the mindset of the high achiever to think like an entrepreneur. We talk with masters of the craft to get the cheat codes to success, helping elite enterprisers level up and maximize their brand. I'm your host, LZ, the mayor. Now let's get to it. All right, Enterprisers, I am here with Corey Kupfer. And listen, I know I say this every single episode, but I say this every single episode because it's true. I'm super excited about this conversation. Corey has a ton of experience, both in business and in podcasting. So I'm selfishly ready to geek out on podcasting. And if you're service business listening to this podcast, why you should have a podcast. So Corey, before we get into any of the good stuff, can I get a oh yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. So, Corey, I always like to start these things off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Feel free to brag on yourself. I know a humble guy like yourself, that might be difficult to do, but give us a two-minute version. Who are you and why should we listen to you? I'll, I'll start out with this. I'm a low middle-class kid from Brooklyn who's uh, made it good beyond whatever I imagined. Went to law school, but was always entrepreneurial. Ran businesses since I was 15, literally had a business with Let's call them contractors because uh, I wasn't withholding taxes, so, so they weren't employees. Back when I was 15, delivering flyers door to door in Brooklyn, opened my own firm, a law firm, you know, five, six years out of school. I've uh, been running it in various forms ever since then. And I also have a speaking training and consulting company. So I've got a book out on negotiating. I've got the podcast. We do content. We do negotiating training. And in a law firm, we mainly focus on deals, any kind of corporate contract deal, negotiating strategy. We help businesses grow. And, you know, we have a very entrepreneurial law firm, which is frankly unusual floors. The one of the things that I'm really curious to talk with you about is a lot of my guests, a lot of my circle, a lot of people that I do business with and I'm around, we're service based business owners. And I always marvel at businesses like Two Men in a Truck and uh, what is it? Uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, how they can yeah. take a service business and really build it to be this big business. So one of the things I really want to dive in with you is as a service-based business, what are some of the ways that you've been able to build and, and grow your business out, right? Because, um, and don't take this the wrong way, Corey, but there's a lot of lawyers out here, right? It's not like it's something that, you know, is is not common. How do you build, grow, and and scale a business that um, commodity is not the right word, but a word uh, that's highly competitive? Yeah, yeah. Listen, when I got out of law school, like I'm a guy who always studies business models. When we talk later about the podcast or the book or whatever, like I studied the podcast model, right? I studied the book model before I did it. I did the same thing when I looked at law firms. And one of the things I noticed, right, when I was at, you know, started out at big New York City firms, got that kind of experience. I was fortunate enough to get those opportunities. But I always knew I didn't want to stay there because I didn't want to be in some big environment 
you know, I had that entrepreneurial spirit. But yet I looked at most attorneys and most attorneys who weren't at big firms were like solo practices or maybe they had one associate or an assistant or whatever. And if they weren't billing hours, right, you know, because most lawyers bill hours unless maybe they do personal injury litigate, whatever. But, but what I do, they bill hours. If they stop billing hours at 70, they weren't making any money, right? So I said, wait, I don't want to be at the big firm. I don't want that. What is an alternative? And I'm not the only one, obviously, but it's much more rare for somebody to build a successful, smaller, you know, firm compared to the huge firms, but where the lawyer is not depending upon billing their own hours, right, right to make money. And the way you do that in the legal field is mainly with people. Now, uh, you know, maybe these days, you know, some AI or whatever will help with the paralegal level stuff, but I believe with the sophisticated stuff we do, it's not going to replace the lawyers. So I've been able to build a team of amazing attorneys who love what they do. And unlike most lawyers who bill in a couple of thousand hours a year, I bill a couple of few hundred hours a year because I only handle high level strategy, structuring, negotiating stuff. I've got a phenomenal team that does all the drafting and, and other, you know, review, reviewing the documents. And I get to be out there providing the highest level of customized service that my clients need me for and to bring in the business and to create the, the vision for it. So building team is the biggest thing. And frankly, a lot of business owners, certainly a lot of lawyers are not great at that. Got it. So let's dig a little bit deeper, Corey. So I, I hear you say when you say, all right, building a team, I get that. All right. Because your team is your competitive advantage. But dig a little bit deeper. What are some of the things when you set out to build it? I heard you say you studied the business model and don't give away the farm. Right. We don't want you to uh, give away any trade secrets here. But what are some of the things that um, or your methodology of, you know, studying that business model and how did you stand out? Right. Why would somebody go and work with your firm as opposed to these other firms? Share a little bit about that your thought process and, and methodology on the, the specifics of building that out. Yeah, sure. So listen, uh, and you're right because, you know, other lawyers have built teams and, you know, obviously providing high quality work, you know, I mean, that's, people try to use that as their distinguisher, but it's really table stakes. Like, you know, if you don't provide great work with great people, you're not going to be competitive in business. So what have we done beyond that? The main things we've done beyond that are that we've established a uh, certain niches and reputations in those niches, okay? So, for example, let me, let me start on a specific industry, and then I'll talk more generally about a broader thing. So we've gotten really well-known in the investment advisor space and financial services, right? And there's a couple of things we do in that space. One, we take, uh, so people manage money at Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, any of the big players, right? And they, and they manage people's money, they're wealth managers, financial advisors, and they want to become entrepreneurs, okay? We are one of the leading firms in the country that help them what we call break away from the wirehouses, banks, trust companies, the big boys, without getting sued, right? Because sometimes they have contracts, but there are a lot of complexities and regulatory things and ways you have to do it. And we built a system, right, that does it for these folks. And we've done it hundreds of times. So unlike a lot of law, in that area, we sort of have a repeatable process, right, which provides high value to the client. It's very profitable to us because we do it over and over again, right? And it's with high-level phenomenal clients who are very willing to pay the fees because the value they get of being able to start their own practice to run and create value for themselves is very high. So one thing we've done is niche. You know, there's a cliche, you know, the riches are in the niches. So we've been able to do that. We've gotten known in that area. And the other thing we've done within that is to build phenomenal relationships with what people would call centers of influence or referral sources or in, in businesses that are not legal. Sometimes you call them channel partners. We can't do that because we can't pay. We can't share legal fees, so we can't pay out, you know. Um, 
but like the Schwabs and the Fidelities and the uh, you know Pershings, like they're, they're all what we call custodians in the space. Again, not important, but who they are, but they refer us a lot of business. The investment bankers, because we do a lot of M&A in that space, refer us a lot of business. The recruiters refer us a lot of business. So the other thing we've done is to focus on key relationships in the industry who have access to the clients we want. And as opposed to, I mean, we get a lot of direct as well, but we get a huge amount of our business through the key relationships and we keep those relationships happy. We don't have to market out to a thousand people, although we do some of that as well. We need to keep, you know, a dozen, you know, or 15 or whatever it is, key relationships really happy by doing great work for their clients that help them and they keep the referrals coming. So that's one thing we did in that niche. That is literally a masterclass. What I heard you say is you built a system that provides value based on the friction that you identified. That's good stuff. And I also noted down in my notes here, um, you built relationships with power partners. Yes. I love it. 100%. I love it. Let's take a a left turn here and talk a little bit about your podcast, because I heard or maybe not a a, a complete left turn. Right. Because we're talking relationships. Talk about your podcast, why you started it and how that's impacted your business. Well, listen, it's a perfect segue because why I started it relates to your prior question about how we're trying to distinguish ourselves. Right. So I said, okay, great. We have this niche that we do really, really well on a great reputation, the one I just talked about. However, the great thing about having a niche is that you get that reputation. We have a lot of referrals. The bad thing about having a niche is that I didn't want to be 100% reliant upon that niche because if something happens in the industry, a regulatory change, the economy, whatever it is, right, you know, if you're totally dependent upon one thing, you're in trouble. So we've always done a lot of deal work for across industries. Yes, in the financial services industry, but tech. I mean, I've done, you name an industry, building clean and maintenance, art licensing, vitamin companies, like we've done deals, right? I'm a deal guy. That's where I've always been for the last 35 years. So the problem though, is that unlike the investment advisor niche, there are a lot of deal attorneys out there, right? And, and like, it's not, a, it's not niched down enough to be able to, you know, make a, uh, I mean, listen, we got good referrals. We built a very nice business doing that, but how did I take that to the next level? So I said, okay, I want to be known for deals, but, you know, there are a lot of bigger firms out there with bigger budgets. They're, you know, been around hundreds of years or whatever it is. How do I compete with that? Oh, wait a second. There's this thing called authority marketing, right? So you talked about studying a model. The first thing I, I did was study the model of authority marketing. Okay, what is this? It sounds like, you know, oh, it's for, you know, experts and coaches and professional service people and whatever to try to create themselves more well-known as an authority in a particular area, right? My area is deals and negotiating. So I'm like, oh, so I started studying that model before even, you know, I got to the podcast or whatever, because what the book, which I did first, and the podcast are, are just methodologies within the authority marketing approach, right, to get yourself out there. And I think most brilliant things, because what happens in the authority marketing model is some people think like you have to do everything. You know, you have to be on Instagram, you have to be on LinkedIn, you have to be, you know, blogging, you have to be doing a podcast, you have to write a book, you have to, right? And, and, and you know, first of all, it's, it's impossible. And second of all, I think the most successful people find the platform of platforms that they're best at, that they're comfortable at, that they're drawn to, that they're going to do consistently, right? Because one of the biggest things about authority marketing is you have to do things consistently, Right. So I, for example, am a good writer, but for me to get that block of time to sit down and really write something, it's just not happening. It's just not going to happen. I'm talking about like a regular blog or articles or whatever, right? 
but I will sit down in my studio every, every week and record a podcast because I, that's natural to me. I mean, I can do that without prep, without thinking, whatever. I mean, obviously, I do some prep on my guests to learn about them, but my point is, like, I can just flow with that, right? It's why I have my podcast studio set up, like, ready to go, right? I walk in, I do it. I built a team around the guest strategy, around the marketing, around the logistics. I don't do any of that, right? I do a pre-interview. I do a guest interview, and it's, you know, whatever, an hour and change a, a week, and I love talking about deals, so it works for me. So what I did was I found those outlets. I wrote the book first, studied the model around that, right, to get that authority out there. And somebody, it's called Authentic Negotiating. So it's all around negotiating, which of course relates to deals. And then we have the Deal Quest podcast, right? So now, okay, all of the deal lawyers out there, I'm getting known, right? We've taken this podcast that in the beginning I was, you know, begging my clients and friends to come on as guests, right? And there was 60 or 80 people listening to an episode. And next thing, you know, we know, it's, I mean, not it's four and a half years later, Listen Notes has this rated as top 1% out of over 3 million podcasts worldwide. We're getting 30, 35, 40,000 listens a month. And now it's become a thing, right? And now even people who have never been a guest or even never listened to it, the funny part is with a podcast, if they know you have a podcast and they see your social content around it, even if they've never listened to an episode, you're creating that authority marketing as well. Mm-hmm. Well, did you have any hesitations or objections before starting the podcast or were you at a point where you were just kind of doing the research and knew that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, I knew it. Well, so here's the funny part. I was not a guy who was the podcast listener, right? I hadn't really gotten into it even up to like a year before I started my own. And I've been a member of Entrepreneurs Organization for a long, long time. He was a global organization of uh, business owners with a certain revenue level. Like 17,000 members around the world. In any case, we had in EO New York, which I was in at that time when I lived in New York, we had Alex Bloomberg, who was the founder of what became Gimlet Media. He sold it for a lot of money eventually. But he had this podcast called The Startup Podcast. And it was a podcast about him starting up his podcast company. Okay. And, you know, he's a guy out of like uh, NPR, you know, public radio. And uh, suddenly he starts this company and he does interviews about him trying to raise money with Chris Saka and do you're screwing up the pitch or whatever. And I totally got into it, right? And at the same time, I was starting to study this authority marketing model and saw that podcasting was part of the thing. So I'm like, oh, this podcasting thing is pretty good, but I want to figure it out before I do it because a lot of people rush into stuff and they have no business model around it. And whether it's writing a book and not understanding that 98% of the books sell less than 300 copies or that there's 3 million podcasts out there and most of them don't have a lot of listenership, I said, let me study this model. And, and, and I wanted to study the model, not of the like major general interest podcast, because that's not what I was going to do, but about the sort of niche authority marketing type approach podcast for people who had done that. So fortunately, I knew some folks that had successful podcasts. So I spent time with them. You know, I got on the phone with them. We had lunch, whatever. I asked all the questions. What should I do? What should I not do? How do I start? All that kind of stuff. And after about a year of studying it, I, I was naturally drawn to it because, again, it's sort of my medium. And I had studied the model. So when I launched it, I launched it very intentionally. Uh, and, you know, I, I sort of say, wow, I don't know. It's become so big. I don't know how I've done it. But at the same time, I'm one of these kind of people that, like, the reason I study something for, for a year is that I'm the kind of person who doesn't, like, I either don't do it or if I'm going to do it, I do it, right? Like, I don't do anything halfway. So we launched it and the company that helped me launch it was great. And then their marketing of it wasn't up to my snuff. So I, I, I sort of made a change. It took me a while. It took me about a year, a year and a half to get the, the right full team in place. And ever since then, we've really been rocking. 
Um, that's cool. I could talk to you about podcasting all day. Naturally, I'm a podcast dude, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the thing that I know lights your eyes up and, and lights your fire. Let's talk about deals. How do you, if I'm, I'm listening to this show and, um, what or watching and I'm like, you know what? I want to do deals. I want to get better at the, the art of deal making. Where do I start? How do I go about thinking about be, being better at doing deals? Because I'm assuming there's an art to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, listen, I always, and anybody who's listening to my podcast, my other content knows that I talk about mindset a lot, right? Because we can learn all the skills, you know, we want or whatever, but if we don't have a mindset shift. So, I always say, listen, there's a different mindset of an entrepreneur versus somebody who works for someone else, right? And I don't say it in any judgmental way, right? We have to find what's right for us. For some people, they're much better off. They should be working for someone else because that's more aligned with who they are. Similarly, not just because you're an, you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean you're, you're a deal maker, right? And you could be in a company and be a deal maker as well. So there's a deal maker mentality. There's a way, one of the reasons I, I really started the podcast was because I found every company is trying to go, grow organically. Everybody's trying to get more customers, more clients, sales and marketing, providing great products and services, right? And you should do that. If you can't get a customer or a client, get another one and get another one organically, you probably don't have a viable business. Having said that, though, I also would run into people all the time who would be frustrated that they weren't growing or they were not growing as, as fast as they'd like. And they were trying to, let's say, access a new market or, you know, hire a new talent or get into a new vertical, geography, whatever it was, and they were trying to do it organically. And there are many, many ways that you can do deals to help accelerate that. And if you study the most successful companies, they do both. They really good. They have a good, you know, or excellent organic growth engine, and they also do deals. And the key thing for me was deals means it's a lot of, it's not just, for example, raising capital and M&A, right? There are a lot of podcasts out there of mergers and acquisitions, no shade on them. Some of them are really good. But the deal mentality for me means any kind of deal. Now, it's not sales. You know, salespeople call it a deal, but that's organic growth, right? So that's not what we talk about. But it, yes, is it capital raising? Yes, is it merchant acquisitions? We have guests on and all that. But it's also joint ventures and strategic alliances and licensing deals and online affiliate deals and sponsorship deals and, you know, distribution deals or whatever it is, right? Anything that's non-organic. So the first thing is that shift into the mentality to say, hey, there's this other way to grow. Maybe I should learn more about it, okay? And there's one key question I tell people at a very basic level to ask. When they, like when somebody says to me, oh, I'm trying to get X done and we're not, it's not moving as fast. I would say to them, ask this question. Who can you partner with, right? And when I say partner, it, legally, it can look at a million different ways. But, you know, who has access to that geography, that customer, that vertical, that client, whatever it is that you're trying to get to, right? that you can do some sort of deal with, right? Just that question shifts the mentality, right? I always say to them, don't worry about what the deal, I can help you structure the deal, right? You just figure out what, what do they have? What do you have? What, what do you have to offer them? What do they have to offer you? What's the objective you want to achieve? And I'll figure out for you whether it's a joint venture or a partnership or an acquisition or a licensing deal or whatever, right? So it's that mentality shift that's the starting point. And then, you know, one of the things I love about the podcast, I know we're not talking specifically about the podcast, but because we have so many different deal makers on, somebody who's in that earliest stage and just trying to figure out what kind of deals they can do to grow their business, if they listen to the podcast, they're going to hear all these different people who've grown their businesses through deals or help people grow their business through deals. And they may say, oh, wait, I can do that. 
I can do that in my business. I'm in a different industry, but that what that person did there, you know, to whatever. I mean, I have a guy who was in the disaster recovery business who put together to compete with the big guys. We helped him do it actually. Put together this association of of small and medium sized firms around the country with a referral network that helped them compete with the big players and to do deal, you know, things together. Okay, so maybe you're in another industry. You hear that episode, and you're like, wait a second, I can do that in my industry. Very cool. So I was writing feverishly on, on my end. You were, you went through some different types of deals. You mentioned joint venture licensing. Give me the other types of deals that you mentioned. Strategic alliances, online affiliate deals, sponsorship deals, distribution deals. We have some people on to talk about real estate deals. I mean, I can go. Yeah, I, I can go lots on of, and on. Lots of different types. Okay, got it. So talk, talk a little bit about your book and how that came about and how that sort of plays in the, the overall strategy and system of how your brain works, because I, I get the sense that it's very structured and very intentional. So talk about the book a little bit and where it falls into your process. Yeah. So the book was really the first thing we did in the authority marketing approach that we decided to take even before the podcast. And the, the theory is you write a book, you establish yourself more as a quote unquote expert. And, you know, it's interesting you said what you said, because I had a different way of approaching negotiating. My view on a lot of the books and training out there, I'm not, not that there aren't other good ones, but a lot of them out there are frankly on the tactical level, right? You know, if they do this, then you do that. And if they do this, right, it's, you know, and some of them, frankly, are manipulative and, and bad. <laughs> and the good ones, and there's some good ones out there, the good ones are at that level. And I believe that's useful skill building information. But fundamentally, I don't think that's where uh, successful negotiation, like the core of it happens. For me, it's uh, like I, I'm a big believer in everything's an internal body of work, right? Right. You talk about mindset shift. At that point, when I wrote the book, 25, 30 years of experience, when I see master negotiators and, you know, what I do versus what other people do, what are they doing? And I came up with this framework. And, and you know, it's funny. My wife said to me, I, you know, I have a joke with her. I'm like, did you just up the insurance or anything? Because she said to me, you need to write this book. You don't want to die with this information in you. Like, you know, you, you have such good results for people. For me, it comes down to a fundamental framework, right? As, as they sort of alluded, the mind thinks in these, you know, frameworks. And it's CDE. And the C stands for clarity. And I have people in multi-million, tens of million dollar negotiations. And they don't have the level of clarity that I argue you should have, Right. And clarity takes some external research. What's the market? What's the other side? What people? But the bigger thing that people shy away from is the internal body of work, right? Like, what is it that really is important to me and why, right? Like, people grow businesses and sometimes are dissatisfied with where they end up because they're not growing, whether it's through deals or otherwise, from the right place, right? They're being driven by ego or by looking good or by you know, pleasing, you know, their daddy issues or whatever it is, right? And then they get to a place and they're like, oh, this is what I've been shooting for, right? So one of the biggest things for me, and maybe it's a little unusual, you know, from a lawyer, is that I want to make sure that that if you're doing deal-driven growth, which is what I put, that you're doing the right deals. You're doing it for the right reason, right? And so if you're in a negotiation, you should be really, really clear on why you're negotiating that deal, what's important to you, what's more important to you, what's, you know, because if you don't have that level of clarity, then you can't really design, I don't care what tactics you learn, an effective negotiating strategy if you don't really know what you want. And you can't, you know, in the heat of negotiation, it's so easy to get thrown off. So that clarity process that I take people through is a much more rigorous process than most people do in terms of their prep for negotiating. So that's the C. The D is detachment. 
And this is the one, you know, this is tough for folks, right? And when I say detachment, I don't mean not caring. I mean, not like the best negotiators have a preference, right? If I'm negotiating with you, I should have a preference. We get the deal done because why am I wasting my time if I don't have a preference? But ultimately, I'm equally as good if we, the deal gets done or doesn't get done, right? Because I'll trust if we can't achieve our objectives, the ones I've gotten clear on, hopefully the ones you've gotten clear on, if they don't match up, it's just not time for us to do a deal. Maybe we'll do a deal later. Maybe we'll never do a deal. Maybe I'm meant to do a deal with someone else. Maybe I'm not meant to do a deal at all at this point. That's the toughest thing for people because, you know, that ability not to get, you know, attached to an outcome, not to really, you know, have it drive you is, you know, is, is tough. And that takes a lot of internal work for some people, you know, they meditate. For some people, they go out for a run. For some people, they pray. For some people, they more analytical. They'll do pros and cons or do a spreadsheet. Whatever it is for you to get to that place. But the best negotiators are willing to walk. And this is a key point. A lot of trainings talk to you about that you got to be willing to walk away. But the difference is a lot of people walk away from upset, anger, ego, frustration, right? If you're walking away from those points, in my mind, you're not doing it right. The best negotiators just walk away from a place of clarity, right? It's not because you're a jerk or anything. It's just because your objectives don't meet mine at this time, right? No hard feelings, but it's not time to do a deal. So that's the detachment piece. And then the ease equilibrium. The equilibrium piece is while you're in the negotiation, it's easy to get thrown off, right? You get stressed, you feel a little scarcity, you really want the deal, or somebody says something, your company's not worth half that, you know, or whatever, it triggers you, right? Well, how do you maintain your equilibrium? Because if you don't maintain your equilibrium, you lose connection to your clarity and your detachment, right? So my book really talks about that internal body of work to achieve CDE, clarity, detachment, equilibrium. And my argument is, based upon a lot of experience, is that you'll be better than 90% of the negotiators out there if you can achieve CDE, even if you don't know a single tactic or counter-tactic. Now, if you take the, the quality training that teaches at that level and put it on top of the 90%. Okay, now that's where you get to 95 or 98%, you know, of the top negotiators, but it's not the meat and potatoes of, of being a great negotiator. Very cool. Love it. So what was the, I don't want to say biggest, what was the the greatest victory so far that you've had in terms of deals that you've made? The one that kind of stands out that um, this one for whatever reason, that was the, I'm going to put that on my mantle of deals. You know, you know I, I do deals every day for, for 38 years or whatever, so there's so many. I guess I'm, the one that comes to mind is, is uh, you know, there's a reason I, I talk about it in the book. So uh, I've got a whole chapter on on this one negotiation. So I have this other framework called um, CPR, which is the Clarity, Purpose, and Results. I, I, want, I don't know if to get into the details of it, but I, what I talk about generally, but I also have a chapter where I use this one negotiation as an example of that. And the, the short version was this was a actually a very big wealth management team who had signed a deal with, with a particular company way before we represented them. And it turned out they were very, very, very unhappy. The management had, according to my clients, breached promises. They weren't good to deal with. They, the clients weren't being served, et cetera. So they had to negotiate their way out of that. And the problem was that they had really bad agreements. I mean, they'd gotten millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, like there was a reason why they gave up these rights, but the, but the new firm owned their clients. They had non-competes, not solicits. They, you know, uh, so they weren't in a good legal place. They had practical leverage because they had the relationship with the clients. So we used my whole framework in the book, the CD and the CPR, uh, to train them. I did mock uh, negotiations with them. 
And it's really funny. Sometimes, you know, you think it's a fake negotiation, but when you do a mock negotiation, people get like, you know, like it shows some things that people take it seriously. And the bottom line is the short version is we ended up getting them a, you know, a great result of training them on on how to get a great result that allowed them to leave with their clients. And, you know, they had to write a check back. They had gotten millions and millions of dollars. Obviously, they had to write a check back, but they were fine with that. And they got to leave and take their clients back and get to it in a better position. So I'll mention that one. But, you know, we've had, I, I love doing deals and we've had so many great successes. And, and even though I mentioned that one, the ones I love even more because, because, I mean, that allowed them to do something great, but it was a dispute situation. And we do those, but more of what we do is like the, you know, the positive deal work where everybody's coming to the table and, you know, achieving something where one plus one is going to equal three or 30. Got it. What's the biggest life lessons you've learned so far? Wow. For me, it comes down to something I preach for a lot of folks all the time. I believe that I am 100% responsible for my life, meaning that I don't control the circumstances, certainly not. But, you know, what Stephen Covey and others have talked about where I got, you know, is in between what makes us different as humans is in between stillness and response to choice, Right. So I could have something tough happen in my life. I can't control that, but I control my reaction or relationship to it. So for me, whether it's my happiness, whether it's my success, whether it's whatever, it's ultimately on me. So that has me do, I always talk about an internal body of work, right? I talked about it in, in the context of negotiating. I, I think it shows up everywhere in life. So if we're not willing to do the internal work, that's where we, you know, we're more likely to struggle. Those of us, and I happen to be very blessed because I have a wife who also does her internal work. And that's why I believe we've been able to build such a great life. That's awesome. I, I wrote a book last year about the art of self-mastery. And one of the, the LZ-isms, as I, I call them in the book, is basically understanding that your life is the sum total of the decisions that you made. You have to make your bed. But the power in that is understanding that you can change your bed if you don't like the bed that you're sleeping in. <laughs> so I definitely feel uh, identified with that. Um, what are you most excited about? We're recording this in June, so it's nice and sunny here in Wisconsin. In the next six months, what's putting a smile on your face? I'll tell you, about, like one of the biggest things I'm focused on in the next six months and, and beyond, the other huge thing that's important to me in, li- in my life for many, many years now is, is being of service. And that's how I approach my, my clients and my law firm. But it's also, you know, um, my wife and I are involved in the, uh, many things outside of businesses. And I have a very specific goal in terms of what we want to do in terms of increasing our philanthropic work. And specifically, you know, it's funny, we, we, we've given a lot of time over the years and we've given a decent amount of money, but like I, I want to bring the financial support to a different level. So at this point, the driver for me to make a lot more, bring in a lot more money has nothing to do with me or my wife. It has to do with the impact that we want to make. So that's really a focus of the next six months for me. That's awesome. If people want to reach out to you, learn more about your book, your podcast, your business, how can they do that? Yeah, so sort of the hub website for all that is coreykupfer.com, C-O-R-E-Y-K-U-P-F-E-R.com. And so the book's there, the the website's there, the contest, the the podcast. You can also just click through. The law firm site is kupferlaw.com, but on that coreykupfer.com, you can also just click through the law firm, you know, from there as well. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much for your time, Corey. I appreciate you having me on. If you got value from today's show, we want you to join the Enterprises Elite email list for more nuggets and resources. And remember, 
No excuses, just execution. Go get it. What a fantastic episode. Hey, listen, I want to know something. What is the top concern that you have in your business? Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it finance? Operations? Shoot me an email, mayor at podcasttown.net. I want to start a conversation around these areas of business and how we can work together and help each other shine even brighter.